You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Twenty years ago, when I was in seminary, I read all about idolatry. I learned that it only became a meaningful category when Israel emerges as a nation without divine images. Uh, I learned that it represents one consistent focus of prophetic literature and the occasion for some truly troubling sexual images and allegories in the prophets. Mm. I learned that in the New Testament it becomes a broader idea, including even abstract ideas like greed, as well as the continued presence of carved temple images. But I did, did not spend a great deal of time wondering what kinds of dispositions and practices might lead to idolatry or to help the faithful resist idolatry. Stephen Fowle's book, Idolatry, from Baylor University Press, takes on precisely that task, and Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him aboard. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, your opening chapter tells readers that this is a work of Christian theology, not a society of biblical literature style, biblical studies, not the history of Israel. Uh, what makes that distinction important for the book's project? Well, there are, as you probably know, a number of books on uh, idolatry, the biggest one being uh, the one by Halbertal and Margalis, um, that really do a history of religions approach that talk about how um, a focus on worship of one God emerges in the history of Israel and how it's related to um, the worship of other gods in the ancient Near East. Uh, and I'm not particularly interested in those because I'm, I don't think those are particularly theologically important concerns. Um, I also deal a great deal with the Old Testament in the book, and I don't spend any time looking at the prehistory of texts like Isaiah or Deuteronomy, both of which play a big role in the book. Um, and those are all good things to do, and those are all things that um, professional biblical scholars spend a great deal of time discussing. They aren't however, directly relevant to a sort of theological reflection on idolatry. Um, and of course, from the theology side, um, it's not typical, I don't think, though it's increasingly common for theologians to dig into biblical texts deeply and unpack them and reflect on them as theologians. So I'm trying to err more on the side of the theology than the professional biblical scholar. Very good, very good. It, it's interesting. I mean that uh, that observation about the divisions within the uh, seminary faculty. I mean that's something that I've been reading in Stanley Hauerwas, for instance, for you know a couple decades now. So it's I, I think it's good that uh, there are books taking uh, seriously the project of bringing biblical exegesis into theological ethics. It's a it's a huge issue for seminaries, because most people go to seminary with the idea that they're going to, on a weekly or, or even daily basis, uh, stand in front of people and proclaim the text of Scripture, the gospel, using the text of Scripture. And one of the things that happens in seminaries is that um, the biblical faculty spend a great deal of time sort of going over these technical aspects of biblical scholarship that effectively disable students from preaching them, and the theologians kind of stay away from the Bible, and so the, the students see this disjunction, but they often don't get the, uh, get the skills they need to bridge those gaps, and so they, 
in some ways they come out of seminary less able to use the Bible in preaching than when they first went in. I've seen that. I've seen that. Well, Stephen, the other big distinction uh, at the book's outset in its opening chapter is between idolatry that unbelievers exhibit and idolatry that believers exhibit. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about uh, you know, why we should attend to that distinction before we launch into that uh, close biblical examination. Well, they're both sort of potentially interesting questions. From the biblical side... Um, the assumption is that non-believers um, are idolaters. Uh, Romans 1 gives a, a strong account of that, and it's really relying on, on the Book of Wisdom um, for its description of, of the sort of fundamental idolatry that characterizes unbelievers. And that's, that's obviously not a great thing, but uh, to me it is much more interesting and much more significant for believers to reflect on on how it is that believers, having been baptized, brought into the family of God, um, presumably under the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, still lapse into idolatry. It's that it's that sort of process that was most interesting to me. There are other questions you might want to raise about the idolatry of unbelievers and what that means about the world we live in, but how it is that believers become idolaters is really how the the driving question in the book, and it really came from my students who, uh, who are not particularly familiar with the Bible, and when they read uh, the Pentateuch, are fascinated by the stories there, and in some ways often compelled by them, and we would get to the prophets, and they would just dig in their heels and say, it couldn't possibly have happened like that. God had done so many wonderful things for these people, it was inconceivable to them that they, that the Israelites, in this case, could become idolaters. And, uh, and from you know, sort of thinking about it, listening to it, seeing it through their eyes, led me to think, oh, that's, that's actually a really interesting question. We ought to explore that. And that was the genesis of the book. Well, very good. Let's start that exploration then with Exodus 32. This is your... Uh, test case, as I see it. This is the golden calf. And your exegesis focuses on the claim uh, that I've seen before, but I think that you explored it, you know, with ethical ends in mind. Uh, but your claim is that the, the calf is not, strictly speaking, a god other than Hashem, like Baal of the Canaanites or Moloch of the Moabites. Mm -hmm. But instead, the golden calf is a domesticated version of Hashem, one who shares some narratives and symbols, but doesn't make the same kinds of demands. So if this calf, if they're still calling it the one who led the people out of Egypt, which is straight out of Exodus 30, 32, exactly. what is it that makes this idolatry? Um, it, it's, well, let me begin this way. Our, our understanding of idolatry would be a lot simpler if it were simply the worship of other gods using images. Um, Exodus 32 is interesting because the Israelites don't think they're worshiping another god but Hashem, um, the god who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. What it is they worship, though, is more like a, a subtle deformation of, of Yahweh, uh, it's like Hashem in some respects, but a domesticated version. 
And I think that's perhaps the most dangerous sort of idolatry because it aims at worshiping the one true God, but really ends up worshiping a, a sort of simulation of that God. And what makes that particularly dangerous is because the difference between the one true God and this domesticated version can be really hard to discern, especially if you if you carry over that distortion over generations, um, you lose the capacity to recognize um, the one true God and to follow that God. And you, you sort of see that later on in the prophets, particularly in, uh, you know, in Amos, where where they think they're worshiping Yahweh, they think they're doing what God wants, and uh, and yet they're not. Uh, Isaiah, of course, also has that, and in some ways, Jeremiah too. Very good. I, I I should have clarified to readers when I say Hashem, that is the Hebrew phrase for the name, uh, that is the Yod Hey Vav Hey, the name that is revealed to Moses in Exodus three. Uh, conventionally, people call it Jehovah Yahweh, the Lord. I I, I think it's because I recently. Uh, interviewed a scholar who translated the book of Job and always rendered it Hashem. I think I got into that habit. <laughs> I, there's, yeah. It, it's interesting because observant Jews, of course, don't pronounce this name. And uh, and it's worthwhile thinking about well, why, why not? Maybe there is a sort of care around the the name of God there that might in itself be a, a sort of way of protecting yourself from idolatry, which I hadn't thought of until just now. Well, good, good. Uh, I should also note, though, I mean, following up on your answer just now, that uh, sometimes I'm tempted to think of conceptual idolatry, if you'll allow that phrase. In other words, the setting up of, to use your, your phrase, domesticated versions of the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. I think of that as a much later and a much more contemporary theological development. But I think your book demonstrates pretty well that with the golden calf, uh, again, we don't have an alternative God with alternative stories and alternative temples. Mm -hmm. But this really is uh, a bad conception uh, and uh, an and idolatrous conception uh, of the same God. And I think that that the fact that those uh, possibilities are inherent in the story so early, uh, I think that's one of the good lessons that this book brings out. It is one of our default positions, or our default disposition is to make God more manageable. Um, you know, I, I, when I was writing some of that, I was thinking about the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and how uh, there's, throughout the Chronicles, uh, there's this phrase repeated you know, that Aslan is not a tame lion. And, uh, and it reminds me, you know, the, the God of Israel, the God of Jesus Christ is not tame in that way. Right, right. And of course, I, and it's been a few years since I've read those with my kids and I haven't revisited them, unfortunately. Uh, but I, I seem to remember a scene in the last battle, maybe, uh, where people actually create a a stuffed lion, if you will, or a lion costume that they worship as Aslan. Exactly. Yeah, and your kids are probably younger than mine, so you've read them more recently than I have. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, gaze theory. Uh, I thought that this was a very helpful tool to bring to bear on this. This is a familiar construct uh, for our listeners who have done some work in continental philosophy or maybe literary theory, but for those who haven't, what distinguishes mere optical perception from a gaze 
in terms of these theories, and how does that uh, concept, how does that idea connect with your theology of idolatry? Sure. Um, well, if you could see me right now, you could perhaps say I'm gazing out my window, um, and that wouldn't be inaccurate, of course, but that's not really what, what these continental philosophers um, are talking about, Jean-Luc Marion being sort of the, the prime one for this. It's really about uh, a way of thinking about um, a focus of our attention and uh, a way of directing that focus that guides our thinking and our being and our life. So it's, uh, it's perhaps a particularly direct form of attentiveness. Now, of course, that once you think of it that way, it may invoke other senses beyond sight, right? Um, and Or it might be something you could even do with your eyes closed. So it's not really tied to optical perception in that way, but it's a way of, of thinking about where's the focus of our attention um, at any particular point in time. And in literary theory, a lot of times it's also paired with a kind of control, which I think translates into a lot of your work on idolatry, to right. to fix someone with a gaze, uh, and it's often in feminist theory that you see this used, uh, yes. is to make her an object, uh, make her body specifically an object uh, that you control as part of your mental field rather than uh, receiving that person, if you will, as another human being. I mean, I... I feel like that end of things also plays into your analysis uh, pretty prominently. It does, yeah. But you're, you're exactly right that it, you know it's women that are often the subject of the male gaze, and uh, and that in the, within these sorts of literary theories, and it is it's a way of fixing them, of objectifying them, and uh, and of course that that is the beginning or one of the first moves you might make in moving towards idolatry. Right. Right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your chapter on forgetting and remembering, because this is one of those dispositions that, again, either resists idolatry or leads to idolatry. And in Deuteronomy 6, famously, uh, you know, the command is given, uh, you shall love Hashem, your God. And you note that if, if we treat this as an imperative, which we should, because grammatically it's a future tense verb, which often has imperative force, uh, then it likely doesn't refer to an emotional experience, which you can't logically command, but some other kind of command. And I'll let you talk about what that is. But you're, you know, you root this in remembering uh, because of what happens in the next several verses. So talk our reader briefly through that and uh, leave enough to uh, the imagination that our readers will still buy your book because they should. Oh, yeah, they make great, great Christmas gifts. Awesome. <laughs> um, well, you might say that the love commanded in Deuteronomy 6 is is also, like a gaze, a sort of attentiveness. Um, and that attentiveness should support and sustain an emotional life, but it's really prior to and not dependent upon an emotional experience. Um, rather, it's a commandment for a wholehearted, single-minded directing of our desires towards God. Um, and then remembering is about maintaining the practices that will help you keep that attentiveness focused on God and not on something else. Um, 
and of course, Deuteronomy 6 talks about a number of different practices, um, telling the stories to your children, of marking your civic spaces and your houses um, with reminders of God's presence, um, using the material world to keep you uh, focused. And so there's there's this sense that uh, our bodies, our relationships, our possessions, our thoughts, and, and subsequently our emotions too, are always to be focused on God. And then doing that allows us to put all of our other uh, cares and desires and loves in the right sort of relationship to each other and to God as well. Um, when believers move towards idolatry, uh, it's often gradual and over time, and it's because the various ways of attentive attending to God, of focusing their love on God, have become distorted in some way. And, uh, and so that's why... Uh, and, and, of course, Deuteronomy talks about that as forgetting. Uh, that's the sort of primary image they use. And that's why it's important right after the command to love God um, is a set of practices for remembering God. Very good. I'm going to let our listeners explore that topic more thoroughly, like I said, when they buy and read your book. But right now I want to turn to Paul's claim that I mentioned in our introduction, not that greed leads to idolatry, but that pleonexia, and you can spend as much or as little time on that Greek word as you want, is itself greed. So without an overt act of religious devotion, a prayer, a sacrifice, a hymn to money, mm -hmm. uh, in what sense is greed idolatry? Well, this is going to be a longer answer maybe, and you feel free to edit it, obviously. Um, and it's a bit hard to explain briefly. Um, I got onto this, of course, because I'd done a lot of work in Ephesians and a little bit of work in Colossians. And in both of those texts, Paul claims that greed is idolatry. And that's an unusual sort of claim. Uh, there are a number of Old Testament and, and intertestamental texts that make the point that greed, or more commonly love of money, leads to idolatry. But it's not the same thing as idolatry. And when Paul uses a term like pleonexia, which we translate as greed, Paul's thinking about something much broader than love of money. He's talking about people wanting more and more than they deserve. So it's not simply about wanting more and more and more and more, but it's about wanting more than you deserve. And of course, Paul lived in a, a very hierarchically structured world where there were pretty widespread and, and widely held conventions of exactly about what people deserved. And, and obviously, in that world, slaves deserved less than masters. Um, rulers deserved more than free people. Um, and wanting more. So, so where your station in life was um, kind of shaped what was appropriate for you to have. And... Uh, and so when Paul talks about pleonexia as idolatry, he's using it in that term of wanting more. At least it seemed as if he was using that term is wanting more than you deserve. And we should note here that, I mean, even in the pre-biblical or pre-New Testament classical world, this is a moving target, right? So, I mean, when yes. we talk about pleonexia in Homer, he's going to have different ideas of that than Plato will and Aristotle will, and so on and so forth. So we shouldn't 
you know, I often warn our listeners that there's no such thing as the Greek mindset, and it's a good thing too. But right. Right, <laughs> so, right. in other words, Paul is involved in an ongoing debate, even as he's revolutionizing that debate. Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, in Homer, battles are fought because people don't get what they think they deserve, um, and uh, and so yes, it's an it's an ongoing um, debate. As much as Paul does and does not participate in that, it was very hard for me to figure out how that sort of discussion constitutes idolatry, though. And and so that's where I started to dig into this. And most of the traditional ways of interpreting these passages tie it back to Matthew uh, 6, 24, where Jesus says you can't serve two masters. And it it really reduces greed to love of money, which Paul is quite happy to talk about elsewhere. And then say it's tied to conflicting allegiances, and therefore it leads to idolatry. Um, it, it, what happens in the history of interpretation is really very much what you see in the Old Testament or in the uh, Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, where greed is one of those initial steps towards idolatry, but not the same thing. So the question for me was, well, how how is it? How can we think of greed in a way that makes it idolatrous in a straightforward way, rather than just a, a sort of gateway to idolatry? And I suggest that we return to a doctrine of creation. Uh, there may be other ways of doing this. Um, I'm certainly open to that. But uh, but this is the way that made sense to me, um, and I think does make sense, at least theologically. Uh, as we are created by God with desires, um, that's important. Uh, if it weren't so, we couldn't love God, for example, or we couldn't love each other. God also, in the garden, provides a whole range of gifts to provide for our desires. Um, the most important of those gifts is that we're offered a free and direct relationship with God, or at least the first humans are offered free and direct relationship with God. We are offered communion or fellowship with God, which is extraordinary. Um, in Genesis, the first humans grasp at something beyond what they're given by God and thus damage their relationship, their communion with God. And in, in that light, I suggest that greed is not desiring more than we're due, certainly not in the garden, um, but desiring something other than fellowship that God has offered us. And so the notion of greed gets transformed by the doctrine of creation, and it's not about then transgressing a set of social norms. Instead, it's, it's about rejecting fellowship with God in favor of something else. It's turning away from God in favor of something that's not God. And that starts to sound an awful lot like idolatry to me. And so in that way, it, it is a way of making sense of the claim um, that Paul makes in Ephesians and Colossians, that greed is idolatry. I, I, I'm very careful to say in the chapter that I cannot guarantee that this is what Paul was thinking. But it is the case that by saying greed is idolatry, Paul has provided us with a at the very least, a, a, an interpretive puzzle. And my sense is that most commentators on this passage gloss over the puzzling aspects of it 
um, by reducing greed to love of money and then reading it through uh, Matthew 6, 24. So, uh, so I was wanting to avoid that and yet still come to grips with the, uh, with the claim. And that's kind of where I landed. Very good. Uh, so listeners, hopefully you're picking up that, I mean, we are giving, you know, sort of a, a broad overview of this taxonomy of idolatry in this book. Uh, you know, so we've talked about idolatry rooted in forgetting. We've talked about idolatry rooted in accumulation or greed. There's also a section on idolatry rooted in fear. Uh, mm. And I like this one because your examination begins with Israel's alliances that Isaiah condemns in the middle chapters of that grand book of Isaiah. But then you connect it to uh, the parable of Captain Big Barnes in Luke 12. Yes. So how does fear-driven idolatry differ from the ones we talked about before rooted in accumulation or the ones rooted in forgetting? I suppose the, the idolatry that comes from, that's driven by fear here is, is really about a failure of faith, um, a failure to rely on God's faithfulness. Um, and that that, uh, that leads you then to turn to other ways of protecting yourself. Uh, it leads you to view the world as filled with threats and that you have to protect yourself from those threats because, because it's not clear that God will do that. Um, and, and so you see it in the alliances that um, Israel makes with Egypt, that um in storing up, building ever bigger barns to store up because you're afraid your food is going to um, run out. It, it's driven, in a sense, by scarcity, by a sense that, in that respect, scarcity, in the other respect, that God won't protect you from your enemies. Um, and so it, it's, it's an unwillingness to live in the light of God's faithfulness. Uh, I suppose that's the shortest way of saying that. And I, and I enjoyed this, this section because uh, I feel like this is, you know, particularly uh, illuminating of our own moment. Uh, you know, I mean, I suppose you could look at the, the 80s and the age of, you know, Gordon Gecko and savings and loan crises as, you know, the, the era of high greed, at least in our lifetimes. I realize the 1890s probably overshadow that. Uh, but in our moment, I feel like a lot of the faithful... Uh, are entirely too eager in our moment to seek alliances with the Egypts of our moment, uh, and you with know, the yes. And uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not being very. Uh, the the veil here is fairly thin, but go ahead and comment on that for a moment. <laughs> no, I I think that's right. Uh, I think there is a. I think you see this in two particular ways. The first is. Um, an intense reliance by Christians on the state to secure what people talk about as religious liberty. Right. And um, there's this fear that um, without the protection of the state, we won't, we Christians won't be able to practice our faith, which of course is it is exactly at the root of the sort of idolatry that drove Israel into Egypt's arms and has driven the church into the arms of the state um, repeatedly over the over the centuries. 
Um, right. And I'll, I'll pause for just a moment. I, you know, I don't know about uh, the churches that you visited, but I've been at more than one church where they will say in very direct terms, we need to be grateful for the soldiers because without them, we wouldn't be Christians. And I always think, oh, what a sad view of the church's history. Yeah, no, that's exactly the case. Um, that in 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 our lifetimes, at least in my lifetime, um, the church has flourished um, in the midst of deep persecution. Now, obviously, Christians shouldn't seek out persecution. Um, that's not a good, but the faith can be sustained by God in those contexts, and the danger of relying on the state to provide that security to practice your faith is to hand over a lot of stuff to the state that that you don't want to do. Um, so that's one aspect where fear, that sort of fear manifests itself really clearly in our world. Um, the other, of course, is the, the stranger and the outsider, the fear of the stranger and the outsider. Um, that leads us to build bigger walls, perhaps instead of bigger barns. Um, but that that others are a source of fear and danger to us, where um, it might be uh, one alternative, of course, is to recognize that our common baptism in Christ probably ties us to people who are crossing our southern border, or at least ought to tie us more closely to people crossing our southern border than to many of the people who are trying to keep them out. Right, right. Well, that same chapter uh, makes one of the moves in this book that I enjoyed the most. Uh, and you proposed uh, not necessarily an introspection, but Christian mission as the chief mode of resisting this kind of, Id of idolatry. Uh, and you turn to Isaiah 2 as sort of a paradigm for Christian mission. Uh, this image uh, that the oracle of Isaiah presents as Zion perfected by the Messiah, you're sure to note that, becomes the place to which the nations come to learn the best way to live a human life. Uh, now, this notion of mission is a little bit different from sending people out to the dark corners of the world, but what does this Isaiah 2 notion of mission, what does it have to do with love and fear, and how does it stand beneficially distinct uh, from those other modern notions of Christian mission? Well, in the face of uh, fear-driven idolatry, I turned to that wonderful passage in 1 John 4 that reminds us that love, when it's perfected, casts out fear. Now, of course, the ultimate perfection of our love probably awaits the eschaton, but the writer of 1 John didn't expect us to not love at all until the eschaton, but to work on perfecting our love, um, both through our own practice and with the Spirit's help. Um, but at the same time, in the context of 1 John, I was also concerned that that notion of love there has the capacity to be very insular and very inward facing, only loving the brothers and sisters very close by you. And so as a way of coming to grips or perhaps addressing that potential that lies within uh, 1 John, I turned to mission as a way of focusing Christian love outwards. 
And then the notion of mission that I land on in Isaiah 2 is, a, is really driven by God's desire to draw all the world back to God. And it's driven not by a fear of being punished by God if you don't turn back, but it's driven by the attractiveness of Mount Zion when God redeems the world. It's driven by the attractiveness of God's love and what that love does to the people of God and how it how it orders their life together and their life in relationship to God in a way that people from the outside look at and are compelled by and are fascinated by and want to be drawn to it. And so, uh, so it strikes me that particularly um, in the light of, of particularly 18th and 19th century missionary activity, which was um, sort of focused on sending people out and often uh, inducing, compelling uh, other people to become Christians and not just to become Christians, but to become Christians of a very European sort. Um, I was, I am suggesting that the church, at least at this time, might benefit from opening its doors, but in opening its doors, reflect a common life that um, that people are looking for, longing for, in fact, and that as their life reflects that life of redeemed Zion, they will draw, they will participate in God's drawing of the world back to God. Well, let's talk for a moment about the content of that common life, because I think, again, this is one of the stronger passages of the book, and I, it, it, you know, it's very intentional. I'm, I'm dwelling on this chapter a good bit. Uh, but in this discussion, you make the very good point that Christian communities should be distinctive, not because we never fail morally, uh, that's just not a, a wager that I want to take, but because of the ways that we have to confront moral failings in our ranks. So talk a little bit about how this vision of the visible church's work in the world connects to that vision of Isaiah 2. Obviously, that picture of Isaiah 2 is... is uh is an end point. Um, and yet, when you look at the church in the first, second, third centuries, they often pointed to Isaiah 2 as a way of thinking about what was going on in their midst. And they knew about their own failings. Certainly, you only have to dip into the Corinthian letters to, um, to see that these people were not morally perfect. And that's um, if you don't take a course in church history. Yeah, or exactly. Um, but what they did, what they had was this sense that the redemption of Zion that God accomplishes in Isaiah 2 is all premised on the forgiveness and reconciliation of Israel's alienation with God. That it's initiated by God, but it requires that um that response from the people of God to restore their relationship with God and restore their relationships with others. And it's in that, and so it was that sense that um, redeemed Zion is a place of peace. And it's only a place of peace to the extent that, not that they're morally perfect, 
but that when they fail, they have the capacities to forgive and be reconciled with each other. And of course, that I, I've, my wager, I suppose, is that is deeply attractive to people. Um, that most people who are not inside the church often see the church as as a place of of the morally perfect or those that suppose they are morally perfect. Nobody nobody is able to uh, to display that better, I think, than uh, Flannery O'Connor. Um, but uh, but they like believers are are longing to have some something to say about their failings, about their ruptured relationships. They they don't want those things to be the last word on their relationship with God or each other. And a church that's got its practices of forgiveness and reconciliation in good working order will be places of peace in the way that Isaiah 2 talks about, and that will draw the world to God. At least that's my expectation. And I'm going to editorialize just a moment and say that in a social media environment in which any kind of perceived or actual betrayal to one of the two major political parties is something that can, you know, turn you into a permanent outcast. I think that forgiveness is an especially appealing possibility uh, if the church has the courage right now to exhibit that. Yes. Yes. And uh, I, I, I think... I think, though, that this is this is um, high level performance of forgiveness and reconciliation. And if you're part of a congregation that is not well practiced at this yet, uh, start with small stuff. Don't don't dive in at the deep end and expect to swim right away. Right. Work, work on the fights you've got over the that you had over choosing the color of the carpet in the sanctuary or, um, you know, the, which Bible to put in your pews or any of those very mundane um, causes for Christians to fall out with each other and work on those um, before you get to the really big ruptures that you might have. Uh, I think if you, unless you start where you, where you really are, where your skills in this, where your um, capacities and practices of forgiveness and reconciliation are, you may overshoot. And that could be very frustrating and potentially damaging for you. Right, right. I want to follow up with one more question about this Isaiah 2 vision of mission. Uh, What strikes me, or at least one of the things that strikes me, about Isaiah 2 and its continuing work in Christian ethics is that Christian views of the community that the soul desires uh, take the risk of locating that community among the historical contingent human beings who are the faithful, mm-hmm. rather than what Plato does by leaving Calipolis as an abstraction, a, a purely intellectual construct, or even the way that you know the Epicurean said, well, we will have this idealized life, but it will be a very elite circle of friends, Uh, drinking wine in the garden together. Uh, It seems like Christianity, by contrast to those things, and I think your book brings to light Israel as compared to these things, just takes gigantic risks. So, I mean, where do those risks take their place in Christian theology? I mean, you know, uh, is this something that we should uh, put a check on, or should we 
to to go back to a gambling metaphor, push all of our chips in the middle of that table. Mm. I, this is a super question, I, I think, and and it it would take a really long time to answer adequately, but I'll, I'll try and say a few things, um, and and so I'll perhaps be painting with too broad a brush in some respects. In an hour, that's what we have to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, and this isn't true simply of the image of redeemed Zion. It, you could say the same things about uh, the heavenly city, the image of the heavenly city in, in Revelation, or uh, Jesus's teachings about the kingdom of God. Um, all of those are ways of describing for us the end point where God is ultimately driving us, where God is ultimately bringing us. Um, and we're not there yet, right? Um, that's, of course, what lies at the basis of the petition in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is that bring about that that end point. Um, but that then leaves us with the question of what to do, how to live, how to construct a common life in the intervening time. And sometimes... Christians have so spiritualized these images of our end point that they actually do little concrete work. Um, or, or in the worst case scenario, they actually mask and underwrite Christian sin. For example, when uh, Christian slaveholders told those that they were enslaving that passively submitting to injustice and oppression now will lead to a heavenly reward later. Um, so you've got that hyper-spiritualized sense that that makes those images largely ineffective. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got um, those times when Christians felt it was their duty to create this world of redeemed Zion or the kingdom of God or um, the heavenly city. And when they've done that, they tend to underwrite, that tends to underwrite a lot of Christian violence against those who didn't see things their way. Um, and that justified the violence because they were getting rid of people who were in the way of the kingdom of God. So ideally, these images of redemption, like Isaiah 2 and elsewhere, um, provide a clear enough picture of what our ultimate ends are, that those ends can guide and shape our practice in the here and now. But that's not a straightforward sort of easy process. That requires an ongoing dialogue within Christian communities about how they should live in the very specific context they find themselves in the light of that ultimate place they're moving to. So if, if we are people who are moving towards redeemed Zion, how do we manifest that in Baltimore in the 21st century, in the place where we live, um, in the light of our, uh, our very particular challenges and, and, uh, and opportunities. And, and so that image has to, um, guide us, but not in the sort of straightforward way that we're going to build the kingdom of God, but that we're going to live in the light of where we're going, which requires that ongoing negotiation with God and in a sense with each other, or the, the exercise of practical reasoning or practical wisdom about how does, how does redeemed Zion or what does redeemed Zion look like for us now where we are here in Baltimore? Um, and that's that's the the great trick, not easy to do by any means, but but hopefully avoiding the two extremes I had talked about. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, as you said, I mean, that is that is one of the grand questions that always 
uh, lies in front of us, and it's one of those questions that we can't answer with sentences and paragraphs, but with a life. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. I want to turn towards uh, your examination of Acts 17, because I think it was another fascinating passage. You bring readers' attention to the setting of Paul's encounter with the people of Athens, uh, namely the Areopagus, where Socrates was tried and sentenced to death. And you note that, you know, a lot of times because we don't read our Plato, we miss that dramatic tension yeah, in the yeah. book of Acts. But you also note that what keeps the people of Athens from taking Paul seriously enough to visit violence on him or to feed him the hemlock uh, is their own curiositas, that vice that Augustine links with a kind of intellectual idolatry. So talk to our listeners about this. I mean, so often we hear uh, curiosity praised as a virtue, uh, but you're talking about curiosity as a vice that is opposed to studiousness as a virtue. What's the difference? Right. And and part of the challenge here is that the English word curiosity, most people use in a in a in a positive way with positive connotations. And yet, for the the vast majority of Christian history, curiositas, the Latin curiosity, um, was seen as a vice. So, and to think of, to understand that you you sort of need to recognize that Christians and and Christians weren't alone in this. Uh, Greeks, Jews. I assume almost everybody um, understood that humans were uh, distinctive, perhaps, in that they were created with a desire to know and learn things. And although they do this in different ways, Christians and Jews and the Greeks of Athens also understood that this desire to know needed training and direction and cultivation and shaping. It doesn't, It wouldn't naturally grow into the sort of thing it ought to. Um, and without being shaped, it would be impossible to distinguish between what's actually true and good from things that merely appear to be true and good. And of course, that, that distinction um, drives so many Platonic dialogues. But it's also um, in the book of Proverbs, where wisdom and folly set out you know, two different banquets for us, and, and of course is deeply embedded in the teaching of Jesus. So Christians came to talk about someone whose capacities and desires to know um, that have been well-formed is said to have the virtue of studiositas or studiousness. Um, that's a rough, but studiousness is sort of a rough, but not exact way of referring to that virtue. And then Someone whose desire to know was malformed was said to have the vice of curiositas or curiosity. Um, and a person with a vice of curiosity, I think it's more, if we're going to, if English speakers are, are simply going to come to see some of the problems here with curiosity, you need to understand why Christians thought it was a vice. Um, someone with the vice of curiosity is always seeking novelty. They easily tire of things and are constantly seeking something new. And, of course, that, that's exactly the way Luke describes the Athenians. But they don't want something that's actually radically life-changing and new in the way that Paul's gospel is. They want new versions of what they're already comfortable with. In addition to that desire for novelty, the curious person thinks of, of knowledge as a, a possession taking something that should be shared and treating it as 
something they can use for their own advantage. Um, and when curiosity does that, the curious person does that, they tend to treat facts in isolation from each other, to use them out of context, or to put them into um, new and inappropriate contexts. And then finally, curious people's desire to know is to know stuff, but not to know stuff in relation to the knowledge of God. Um, of course, that's typical of uh, all of our desires when they're disordered, is that we fail to put them in the right relationship to God. But rather than extinguish our desires as some forms of, of um, Eastern religions might urge us to do, they need to be put and trained and put in their proper relationship with God. They need to be, of course, redeemed by, by Christ and uh, put, therefore, in their proper relationship to God. And so the curious person has all of these malformations or deformations in their desire to know, which um, starts to tilt them towards idolatry. And it's certainly part of what Paul understood was going on with the Athenians in Acts 17. Very good. This reminds me of, of a place that you go in the conclusion of the book, uh, where you uh, bring up Jeremiah 29, and it's called to seek the shalom of the city. Uh, and you frame that not necessarily in terms of activism or policy, but in terms of attention. And yeah. I, I feel like that that might be a, a good counterpart to this curiositas you're talking about. This nope. is, I, I, I think, if I'm reading you right, the kind of attention that makes demands on us to live differently once we have attended to the difference of our neighbors. So, I mean, is, is that one of the disciplines you point to as a, 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 a way to resist idolatry? Absolutely. Um, you know, Jeremiah has this very difficult task of telling the exiles in Babylon that, that exile is God's will for them. And, they and because of that, they should fully inhabit that place of exile. And there's this great line in Jeremiah 29, you know, seek the shalom of the city where I've sent you because in their shalom, you'll find your shalom. And that means that whether God has put us one place for a very long time or we move, God moves us from place to place over time, it's important to understand that it's always a particular place with its own history, its own background, its joys and sins and and to seek and to seek the shalom of those places we have to understand them we have to attend not just to their written histories of course but to the the stories particularly the stories of the people who haven't made it into the written histories um because unless we understand that story or those stories well unless we've attended to these places where God has put us, it's going to be very hard for us to tell God's story there. Um, and so it's it's about, it's, it's, it's attentiveness, it's an unearthing of what has been ignored, um, it's bringing to the surface or bringing to the center what has been at the margin, um, all of those things. Very good. Well, in our context, in this moment, uh, I think that this uh, situates another section of your conclusion quite well, because you offer in that conclusion some initial thoughts. It's not a full exploration, but it's some beginning thoughts into the ways that white privilege in particular stands in some relationship to idolatry in the terms that we've been exploring today. So take a moment to talk to our listeners 
about the ways in which this book's theological disciplines that we've been talking about can help American believers live faithfully, not in a land of heathen temples, but perhaps in a land of Confederate monuments? Well, here's, you know, this is a very personal example, I suppose, is that um, I was struck to learn that the great majority of the Confederate monuments that were and, and continue to be matters of dispute in various places were not set up in the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, the two great periods of monument construction were the first two decades of the 20th century, when states were enacting Jim Crow and other segregationist laws, and then during the Civil Rights Movement in the 50s and the 60s. And if you remember that context, you know, of course, going back to Deuteronomy about remembering, um, that puts those monuments in a whole new light. Um, now, obviously, white privilege or white supremacy or whiteness, uh, I don't have a preferred term necessarily, um, that's also sustained by fear um, and uh, just like many other forms of idolatry are. And the greed, which is idolatry, of course, is, is at root a rupture of communion between God and others. Uh, um, and that also sustains white privilege. Um, and to combat that, it's not simply necessary to love our brothers and sisters of color. We need actually to desire to be in real concrete communion and fellowship with them. And, and that's not inviting them to become like us. It's about our own uh, dispossession and repentance so that we can be welcomed by them as broken, deeply wounded believers who have, in our participation in white privilege, been part of their oppression. Um, and so it, this whole large structure of, of white privilege and its role in Christianity um, struck me as one of the areas where so many of the dispositions I'd spoken about earlier in the book come into play and um, and threaten, of course, then to to lead us into idolatry or to at least get us moving in that direction. And listeners, uh, if you want some very good, sustained conversation about these realities, I'll recommend the podcasts uh, Truth's Table and Pass the Mic, both by The Witness, which is a black Christian collective. Uh, they have, I guess I'll say some of the best because I've not listened to every podcast, but uh, in my experience, the best examination of these sorts of things. But Stephen, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What about idolatry, discipleship, or whatever else do you want our listeners thinking about as we head for the door? Well, um, well thank you. That's, that is very hospitable. Um, I find in myself, and certainly in talking with others about idolatry, that it's really easy to fall into the habit of diagnosing all the evils we see around us as forms of idolatry that need to be denounced prophetically. And, and that, that part is true. There surely is a place for prophetic words in our own day, and we've talked about that some ourselves. But it's important to remember that the prophets have a horrible track record when it comes to turning the people of God back from idolatry. When a prophet comes on the scene, it's usually the case that things are so far gone that idolatry is so deeply embedded in us that um, we don't recognize what they're saying to us. We don't respond. In fact, we often persecute them. 
And the constructive part of, of the book is about those habits and dispositions that if we embed them into the life of discipleship, will keep us far enough away from idolatry that we won't need to profit in the first place. And that's that's kind of the, the message of the book is kind of, let us get our lives in such a place that we never need to have a profit. Because if we do, um, things are probably too far gone. Stephen Fowle, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you for having me. It was great to talk with you. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. The book is Idolatry from Baylor University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.